We are in the book of Zephaniah. I know it's everybody's favorite. <laughs> Have you ever had somebody who was on the inside for you? Uh, somebody who had insider knowledge? I know uh, I've, always, I've always been kind of skeptical when people say, well, you know, I've got my cousin's brother's aunt uh, works in the uh, administration of the president, so I know the real thing that's going on. And I'm always thinking, oh, okay, all right, sure. Uh, I, I don't know what to what to believe about, but they're convinced they've got the insider knowledge. When I was in college, I, I wanted to be in broadcasting and I interned at Channel 13. Um, I didn't know anything big, but I was able to come home and, you know, Channel 13 is the station we always listened to or watched growing up. And so I was able to tell my dad, who's a news junkie. Uh, okay, this is what that that guy's really like. You know, this is what she's really like. This is what Marvin Zindler's really like. <laughs> Boy, he was a piece of work. Um, what you saw on TV was only the half of it. But the prophets of God were the ultimate insiders. Because when all the chaos was going on in the world, and, or all around Israel, and imagine, you know, as, as chaotic as our world seems... How much more chaotic was it in a world where you were a member, you were a citizen of a tiny little nation with all these big, aggressive nations all around you? You had no access to any kind of media. You had all you knew was what you saw in the, in the sky above you, and 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 what people were whispering as rumors. Well, the prophets were the only ones who really knew what was going on because they had a connection to God, and God gave them words. He God gave them messages to send, and so the prophets were the ones who could come along and say, "Okay, I know this." seems bad, but here's what God is doing. Or, I know things seem good and, and you think you've got it made, but watch out because this is coming. Or, I know you think that your, your life is uh, perfectly in line with God's will, but I've heard from the Lord and it's not. You need to change. You need to repent. So, always when you read the prophets, look at them that way as the ultimate insiders, the ones who could say, let me tell you what's really going on. We don't need that today. You know why? Because we have the Holy Spirit. And God, through the Holy Spirit, lets us know what he wants us to know. You and I may wish we knew more than we knew. I think we all do. But God gives us just the right amount of grace, just the right amount of knowledge, just the right amount of information for the time we need it, as long as we're in the Spirit. So, let's talk about Zephaniah the prophet. Who was Zephaniah? So he was, uh, he lived in Judah during the reign of King Josiah. And Josiah is one of my favorite little-known stories from the Scriptures. I'm going to share that with you in just a moment. But one of the other interesting things about Zephaniah, and we're, when we get to the first verse in just a moment, you'll see, he, he lists not just his father, but four generations back. And that's unusual. See, the, the Jews didn't just do that randomly. It wasn't like Zephaniah got a subscription to Ancestry.com and he was trying to show off. If you listed your whole, your whole genealogy, it was because you wanted to show something. You, you, were, you were saying, okay, I'm descended from this person. And he assumed we knew who it was. Therefore, when he says that he's the great, great grandson of Hezekiah, a lot of scholars assume he's talking about the former king of Judah. Now, we can't prove that because it doesn't say Hezekiah, king of Judah. It just says Hezekiah. But why else would he list him? Well, you'll see it when we get to verse 1. If that's true, 
then he was a relative of King Josiah, the king who was on the throne when he was an adult. And it's possible that they grew up together, that he was even an, uh, an advisor to Josiah. We'll, we'll talk more about that in just a moment. One more interesting thing. The name Zephaniah, and names in the, in the biblical times usually meant something. You didn't just name someone something you thought sounded good or name them after your favorite celebrity. You know, you named a child what you hoped that child would be, or your, your name for them was a prayer to God. The name Zephaniah meant the Lord hides. So there's speculation. Why did his parents name him that? When Zephaniah was a little boy, the king would have been a man named Manasseh. If you know anything about the books of 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, you know Manasseh was by far the worst king that Judah ever had. And one of the things he did was he shed innocent blood. Some people think that means he tried to kill the prophets of God. So perhaps Zephaniah's parents were godly people who said, Lord, please hide our son. Please spare our son from death. This is just an interesting speculation, but that's all it is. Now, here's what we know. Hezekiah was Judah's greatest king next to David. He, there's lots of information about him in the books of Kings and Chronicles, um, but he was an excellent king. Uh, his son Manasseh, ironically, was the worst ever. So you go from the best to the worst. Uh, Manasseh, the, there's a long list of his sins. And, and by the way, not only was he a terrible king, he, he reigned forever. He, he reigned for over 50 years, one of the longest reigning kings uh, in any, either Judah or Israel. Uh, just as an example, he, he chased after foreign gods so diligently, he actually burned his own son in the fire to the, to the god Molech. Um, now, once Manasseh was finally dead, his son Ammon was no better. He only reigned two years before he was assassinated by some of his own men. And so they put Ammon's son, Josiah, on the throne, even though at the time he was only eight years old. Now, there's no record of what happened. There's no record of who actually ruled. Most scholars think there must have been a, a group of godly, wise men who ruled for Josiah, who essentially would probably come in to this little boy and say, okay, sir, uh, here are the things we want you to sign, the decrees we want you to endorse. And he would you know, take his little uh, writing instrument and say yes. What we do know is you know, he starts becoming king at eight, but at 16, he begins to follow the Lord. At 16. Now, that's a, that's a prime age. I, I know we, there's no such thing as age of accountability. We've sort of invented that concept because it's not in the Bible. But if you, if, if you meet someone who comes to know Christ, uh, chances are it's probably in their late childhood or teen years. That's, that's the prime time for people to come to know God and start following Him. And the teen years especially. I, I know I accepted Christ when I was nine, but when I look back at my testimony, I really started following Him when I was 16. At 16, I looked around and said, okay, I believe in Jesus, I know I'm saved, but I mostly do good things and go to church and, and, and try to avoid bad stuff because I don't want to get in trouble and because I want to make my parents proud. But at 16, I decided I'm going to follow him for myself. That was a significant turning point for me. It was almost like a second salvation, although I was already saved. And so for Josiah, that for him also was his transition. He began to follow the Lord. And at the age of 20, he had grown in the Lord enough that he began to destroy idol worship throughout the land. Now, again, keep in mind, 
His grandfather Manasseh had been king for over 50 years, and then his father Ammon had been king for two years. And those guys, for over half a century, had just proliferated idol worship throughout the land. So there were probably uh, priests of Baal and Ashtoreth and every other false god you can imagine on the payroll of Judah, and they were everywhere. And by the way, before Manasseh came, it's not as though there wasn't already idol worship in the land. Remember, we've talked about the high places even in good times, even in times when most of the people were following the Lord, even when there was a righteous king on the throne, there were always these high places, these, uh, these shrines up in the hilltops uh, where people would go and hide and where they could worship their false gods in secrecy. And so the, the land was full of idolatry. And Josiah begins to go root all that out. He destroys all the, all the idols. He actually has the pagan priests uh, uh, all executed on orders of the government. He, he finds the high places and destroys them. Uh, he even led the people to celebrate Passover. They hadn't celebrated Passover in forever. Nobody could remember even how to do it. Um, and he decided to start repairing the temple. The kings before him, kings like Ahaz, like Manasseh, like Ammon, had imported false gods and had put them into the temple, partially because they were idol worshipers, partially also because they were afraid of the Assyrians. And so they, that was their way of saying, look, we've even converted our temple, the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, into a temple that worships your gods. So leave us alone. Don't, don't attack us anymore. Well, so Josiah says, let's clear all that stuff out. Let's restore the temple as best we can to the glory it once knew. And so in the process of restoring the temple, they came across a scroll and they brought this scroll to Josiah. So imagine this young man, this young, very uh, passionate, very uh, uh, zealous young king. And these priests come in and they say, oh, king, we found a book in the temple and begin to read it. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what, it just says it was a book of the law, but scholars pretty much agree it was probably a copy of Deuteronomy. And it says that when they read the book, Josiah tore his clothes because he thought it's way worse than I ever realized. Here's, here's this book that tells us if you do these things and these things and these things, here's what's going to happen. And it was destruction of the land. Josiah thought all I have to do is just get rid of these idols and everything's fine. But no, this book says we've already gone too far. We've already gone past the point of no return and God's going to destroy us. So not knowing what else to do, he called for a prophetess, a woman named Huldah. Uh, he called for her and he said, okay, uh, tell me what, what God is going to do. Again, the prophet is the insider. Josiah, he could pray, but he couldn't hear from the Lord. Huldah could. And she came and said, well, king, there's nothing you can do to save your country. It's the judgment's coming, but because of your heart, because of your repentance, it's not going to happen in your lifetime. And so Josiah, in many ways, saved his nation, or at least spared it for a time. Now, in the meantime, something in the world that was happening is the Assyrian Empire was crumbling. They were starting to lose battles. And this is part of the reason why Josiah is able to get away with some of the stuff he's doing. If, if one of the kings before him had done this, the Assyrians would have heard about it and they'd come down and invaded. But because Assyria is struggling... Josiah is free. And in fact, he, he's able to expand the borders. Uh, he, he, doesn't just, he doesn't just do his reforms in Judah. He goes up north to the land that doesn't even belong to him anymore and starts ridding, ridding some of those northern cities of their idols as well. And nothing happens. But then he hears word that the Egyptian army is on its way north. The Egyptians are allied with the Assyrians. 
He knows that the Egyptians are going up there to help the Assyrians fight off the Babylonians and preserve their empire. And Josiah doesn't want that to happen. He wants Assyria to fall so that his people will be free. So he decides to ride out in battle against the army of Egypt at a place called Megiddo. Y'all probably have heard of this. It's this big open plain in Israel, and it's where most people believe the Battle of Armageddon will be fought. There's been a series of great battles fought there. There's even a battle in World War I fought there. But this is, this is Josiah leading his army into battle at the age of 39 by this time. The prophet Jeremiah, by the way, told him not to go. said, the Lord, the Lord is not in this. Your heart's in the right place, but you should not go. Josiah went anyway, and he was killed in battle. And so at the age of 39, this spectacular king, this, this zealous young man is gone. And Jeremiah writes a lamentation for him. So that's the context here. Uh, I assume, I can't prove it, but I assume Zephaniah writes this book after Josiah dies. What is it about? Very simply, it's about the day of the Lord. And you might, if you've been with us through this whole series, you're like, I thought every one of these books was about the day of the Lord. Joel's about the day of the Lord. And, and uh, you know, Nahum's about the day of the Lord. Well, None of the prophets use the term day of the Lord more than Zephaniah. Word for word, he talks about it the most. Uh, remember, this, the day of the Lord was essentially, here's when God shows up and, and straightens things out. For Zephaniah, the day of the Lord was coming in his lifetime. It was coming against his people, Judah. It was coming against the other nations of that region. But he also looked forward to a future day of the Lord. There's there, many of the things he says in here, like a lot of the prophecies of the Old Testament, uh, have a dual fulfillment. It's something that happens in their lifetime, but then it looks forward to something in the future. We know this because the New Testament quotes it and says, okay, this is still to come. Um, so this is a book that's very, uh, very divided. It's very, very uh, harsh at the beginning and very, very hopeful at the end. So let's look at chapter one, verse one. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. You see what I mean by that? These four generations back. So we think that's the king that he is descended from. In the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So all that language of sweeping away everything, birds and fish and, and mankind, it sounds like a reversal of Genesis 1. You know, God created all these things. Now I'm going to take it all away. Um, like a lot of apocalyptic, like a lot of... Uh, prophetic language, we think it's probably hyperbole. It's, it's God's way of saying it's going to be bad. Judgment's coming and it's going to be awful. You're going to, it's going to seem like the whole world is coming apart. Now, verse four, he gets specific. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut them off from, I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. Note that pagan worship has returned. This is why I think this is after Josiah dies. Because when Josiah is there, all the pagan worship's gone. I mean, if you worship a pagan god, you're, you're getting executed. That's, that's how zealous he was. So what it shows is, and we know this from, from the Bible, once Josiah is gone, the people go back to their old ways. 
And it's very depressing. When you read the histories in the Old Testament and you read the story of Josiah, you're just going, hooray, the people are finally getting it back together. And then he dies, just all of a sudden goes out to battle and he's dead and everyone goes, oh, well, let's go back to our old God. And it's so sad, but what it shows us, you cannot legislate revival. Don't you wish, don't you wish it was that simple? Don't you wish we could just, okay, all we got to do is just elect a Christian president and he will dictate revival and there will be a great awakening across the nation and everybody will believe in Jesus. And I wish it was that easy. It just doesn't work that way. I, you know, I'm not saying it's, it's not a good idea to have a, a man of character in the White House. That's, I think that's what we all should want. But we can't legislate revival. It has to happen in individual human hearts. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that comes top down. It comes from inside out. And it hadn't happened to the people of Judah. They had followed Josiah. They had done what he said. But once he was gone, they went back to their old ways. All right, verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. We know now that he's talking about the invasion by Babylon that eventually toppled Judah. Y'all, that was only 12 years after Josiah died. So 12 years after this young man dies, the nation ceases to exist. That's how long they lasted. There was a series of kings. None of Josiah's sons were any good. Um, and none of them could prop up the nation or lead it correctly. Verse chapter 2, verse 1. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes, place, takes effect before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So a couple of things to note here, and, and I've said this before, I just want to reiterate this point. Often when the Bible talks about God's wrath, God's anger, it does not mean that God is doing anything directly. Often God's anger and wrath are expressed through his inaction. In, in, in other words, God says, okay, you want to go there? Go ahead. It's like a parent who says, you want to do that? I'm not bailing you out. Yeah, I'll, I'll see you in the morning when they, when they unlock the jail cell. I'll come pick you up, but I'm not showing up in the middle of the night and getting you out of jail. I, I'm just not going to do it. That's, that's the wrath of God often. Now, there are times in Scripture where the earth swallows up, opens up and swallows somebody, or when, you know, lightning strikes, when, when things like that happen. But here is one of those cases where it talks about God's anger. What God's anger, the way it's manifested here is the Babylonians are coming down from the north. They're going to invade. And this time, unlike every other time, God's not going to intervene. He's going to let them have their way. And tiny little Judah's going to fall. The other thing I wanted to point out is in this passage we just read, he says, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the Lord. Remember, uh, Zephaniah's name was the Lord hides. So I, I find that interesting. But there's, there's always a reason for these prophecies. It's not just to say, well, too bad for you. But there's always, always a sense of, okay, here's your option. Here's what can happen. Here's the good news. 
So there was no good news for the nation of Judah, but for individual people, he's saying, if you repent, there's a chance you could be spared. God could hide you. You could, you could, you know, the, the Babylonian wave could wash over this land and thousands will be killed and thousands and thousands will be exported uh, and exiled, but you could be left behind. You could still live in your house. You could still worship the Lord. So he's giving them a chance. And then he goes on. We won't cover this part, but he goes on in chapter 2 and, and foretells judgment against all the neighbors of Judah. He kind of goes around the circle. So he talks about Philistia, where the Philistines were from, Moab, Cush to the south, and Assyria itself and how they're all going to fall. And then let's move on to chapter 3 because we want to get to the hopeful part. So look at verse 8 of chapter 3. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Now, it's very clear that he's made a transition. He's not talking about what happens in 597 BC when Babylon comes and destroys the temple and carries the people off into exile. He's not talking about that anymore. We know that because now he's talking about the whole earth. See, when Babylon invaded Judah, it was terrible for the, for the Jews. But if you were living in America or South America or Africa or Asia, you didn't even know about it, right? But here he's talking about a worldwide judgment. So now we move to the end of time. Now we move to the return of Christ. Although, of course, Jesus isn't mentioned here. That's what he's talking about. So look what he has to say about that time. This is, this is so nice, so beautiful, so beautifully put. Verse 9, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. So there he's talking about a reversal of Babel. Remember the story of the Tower of Babel where all the peoples of the earth, back when the earth was still very underpopulated, it was near creation and, or near the, the time of the flood, and, and all the peoples of the earth gathered and said, okay, let's build this big tower and make a name for ourselves and, and basically make ourselves our own God. And God came down and confused their language so they couldn't communicate with each other, and they were scattered. This is a reversal of that. Now we live in a world where everybody speaks a different language, where nobody gets along, and God's going to give us one, one language, and we'll praise the Lord together. Now, don't you want to know what language that is? Don't you, don't you hope it's East Texas English? Right? <laughs> there, will be some, there will be some people who have to learn how to say y'all. It doesn't really matter, because whatever language we speak, we'll be praising the Lord. But he goes on to say, from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. How about that for good news? No shame anymore for the deeds you've done. For the things that have brought you a sense of shame and guilt, it's all going to be gone. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice, they shall speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. So 
you've just gotten through with this book in the midst of all the prophetic books that talk over and over again about how wicked the people are, not just because they worship other gods, but they become like those gods. They, they cheat their neighbors. They, they aren't compassionate. They, don't, they lack integrity. They lack uh, sexual faithfulness. They're just so wicked in so many ways. Corruption, the, you run, it runs the gamut. And he says, but now there are going to be people who will do no injustice. They'll speak no lies. They will feel no fear. How does that happen? That's called sanctification. That's the process that's going on in your life right now or should be going on in your life. Yeah, this is something that I wish we as Christians would think more about. We often think about... Uh, you know, what's the most exciting thing in your life? Oh, well, you know, deer season's coming up. Or, you know, next month I get to go uh, see my grandkids. Or, uh, you know, I, I've got this big project at work. And if it, if it hits it big, boy, we're all going to do well. What are you excited about? You know, the thing you should be most excited about. And all those things are fine. The thing you should be most excited about is right now there's a process going on in your spirit, which if you participate alongside the Lord, is changing you into His image a little bit more every day so that someday all your sin will be gone, all your shame will be gone, and you will have nothing left but joy and courage and all the fruits of the Spirit. That's what we should be excited about. We ought to be able to sit down and just track it and go, okay, look look at that sin that I used to struggle with that I don't anymore. And this sin that I struggle with now, I won't always be that way. I, I am determined to overcome it by the power of God. That should be our biggest source of joy and excitement about our own lives. Um, didn't plan to say that, but I had to say it. Sanctification is in evidence here. Verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. That's a, that's a great picture of, uh, you know, when you're in a time of fear, you don't feel like you can do anything right. Don't let your hands grow weak. Your hands ought to be active. You ought to be able to go out and just conquer the world. Now, verse 17 is my favorite verse in the whole, in the whole book. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I'll come back to that. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So a scholar named O. Palmer Robertson says this. I, I just had to quote it because it's so perfect. He said, one of the most awesome descriptions of the wrath of God and judgment found anywhere in scripture is in the opening verses of Zephaniah. And then one of the most moving descriptions of the love of God for his people found anywhere in scripture appears in the closing verses of Zephaniah. See the contrast from beginning to end. Now verse 17, I said is my favorite. It's been described by some as the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Um, look at it again. Verse 17 of chapter 3. The Lord your God is in your midst. He will be your God and you will be his people. That's what the promise was, even from the time of Moses. He is a mighty one who will save. It's, it's literally a mighty warrior. He fights for us. He rescues us. 
rescues us from anything that would seek to harm us. He delights in us. Think about that. God is delighted with us. He, he, he enjoys us. I know it's hard for us. He will rejoice over you with gladness. It's hard for us to imagine God this way, but think about if you have kids, think about how happy you were when your kids would come home, right? They went off to school. If they came home, what a great day that was. You couldn't wait. You were marking the clock. You couldn't wait for them. To, and and it's, some of you raised kids before there were cell phones. I, I don't know how you did it. Because <laughs> you'd just be, okay, when are they going to get here? I mean, now you call them. You're like, okay, where are you? Tell me what progress you're making. When are you going to get here? Um, that's how God feels about us. He is delighted in us. It makes, his, it makes his heart fill with joy whenever we turn our eyes towards him. And not because he needs us. That's the amazing thing. You know, we as earthly parents, we get excited because that's pretty much the most exciting thing about our lives. But God has everything in the world. He doesn't need us. He chooses to delight in us. He chooses to love us that way. And I love this thing about he will exalt you. Oh, before I get to that, that's my favorite part. But he will quiet you by his love. Now, that's kind of a, a weird thing to say. Does that mean, some think it means that uh, he, he kind of comforts us until we fall asleep. You know, we're crying, we're fussing, and he comes along in his love and he comforts us until we rest. Maybe. There are other scholars, and I'm talking about Hebrew scholars. I made a C in Hebrew, full disclosure, so I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I was lucky to pass. Hebrew, genuine Hebrew scholars say it's either that, that God comforts us until we can rest, or, or it means he gets quiet out of love for us. He looks at us and just sits back and says, this is, this is the one I love. I don't know which one is correct. I, I, I think it's probably the first one because it sounds more like the rest of Scripture, but either way, it's exciting. But this is the part I love. He will rejoice over, he will exult over you with loud singing. God sings over us. So maybe you weren't like this, but when my kids were little, especially my daughter, my son not as much because he was a different kind of kid, uh, but Kaylee always wanted a story and a song every night before I put her to bed. Um, and putting to bed became my job because Carrie did literally everything else. You know, she's like, you got to do something. Um, so Kaylee always wanted a story and it had to be a different story than the one the night before. And she always wanted a song. Sometimes I could get away with singing a song out of the old Baptist hymnal, right? But sometimes I couldn't. Sometimes she wanted a song based on the story I just told. Now, there are no recorded versions of any of these songs. You will never hear a single one of them. But yeah, I just sort of made it up and you know, threw some kind of tune together. And I, think about, I think that's what it means. God exalts over us with loud singing. He just, he just sings to us. He, he rejoices in us. He, he delights in us. Now, that's no minor thing. I, you know, there are a lot of people, including I'm sure people in our church, that grew up in homes where there wasn't love, where there wasn't delight, where there was at best, well, I hope, hope you know, dad's not drinking today or hope mom's not in a bad mood. Maybe I'll get away this day without you know, getting a smack. There, there are people, I'm sure in our church and definitely in our community, that can look back on a time 
when they felt like they were somebody, maybe as a teenager, they had some kind of skill or some kind of, maybe they were, you know, some kind of something that attracted them to others, but now that's gone. Or, or maybe uh, they fell in love at one point. Oh, this was so great. And then that soured. And now it's been forever since they felt like anybody valued them. You know, whatever you think about yourself, whatever people have told you about yourself, the only one who's, who's, opinion really matters and the one you will spend eternity with adores you absolutely adores you and always will and that's the best news i can give you let me pray for us almighty god we come before you and we thank you again for lord the parts of your word that are hard for us to hear the parts that talk about your wrath and your judgment we thank you for those, Lord God. We thank you also that you love us. And you love us enough to take your judgment upon yourself so that we can be rescued. And we pray, O oh Lord, for every person we meet, people in this room and others who are struggling, who are trying to find that kind of love and that kind of acceptance in other human beings. And I pray that they would recognize it's, it's in you. And you already love us that way. What they're looking for is in you. Help us to communicate that to them effectively. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.